Hey folks, just a quick note about the episode you're about to hear. It does contain adult themes, might not be the best one to listen to with little ones around. You're now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. Hello, everybody. I am Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. Welcome to Sound of Sanity. Hi, Jake. Hey, Nathan. Welcome to Sound of Sanity. You're the pastor who's a master of sanity. It's true. And we are mixing things up today, Jake. We are... I, I noticed, yeah. Crafty kitties. Meow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We are... <laughs> because I'm going to have you introduce... The third guy. <laughs> what a loser position to be in. <laughs> it's because I made fun of our music, folks. That's why this is happening. It's <laughs> a little bit of passive aggression. It's probably deserved. Hey, I'm never passive aggressive. Ever. Nor am I sarcastic. People are often people will come up to me on the street and be like, You are the model of a sincere guy with no passive aggression or sarcasm. sarcasm. Yeah. And I'll say thanks homeless person now, now dance and i'll pull out a dollar and kind of wave it in their face so jake why don't you introduce you're wearing a t-shirt that says call me the model of sincerity mm-hmm. and, and I'll, I'll give you a dollar and i'll give you a dollar and then, in and then you walk around you dance but only if you dance and then you walk around in like the home the parts of town where homeless people congregate and you know Sometimes you give them a dollar and sometimes you don't. Yep. Parts of town where homeless people congregate, a.k.a. Main Street. <laughs> Liberals today. Uh, <laughs> actually, Evansville's pretty, pretty nice. <laughs> pretty nice. We're not like Portland or one of those apocalyptic hellscapes <laughs> that you see. And anyway, speaking of apocalyptic hellscapes, <laughs> introduce the, the other guy, guy. His name's Ben. He's yep. right over there. Hey, Ben. So you're a preacher who's a teacher of sanity. That's right. And Ben, I'm sorry I called you an apocalyptic hellscape. I don't think you're an apocalyptic <laughs> hellscape, but I think you're a great guy. Thanks, Nathan. I appreciate that. You're welcome, Ben. I'm glad you appreciated it. We're going to do a multi-part series on IVF and the fertility industry and things like that. And this is related. This is actually something we wanted to do connected to our other podcast that we do with Pastor Tim Bailey, The World We Made, which is currently dropping episodes on the topic of abortion. I think it's a great season. I think, as I wrote in our email, it's the most quietly subversive season of the world we made yet. Nice. And I think that's true. I think that's actually true. I think this season might anger more people than Mm -hmm. anything we've done. But you have to let the whole argument build across the thing. So there's a teaser for the world we made season three. Go listen to it. It's great. But we wanted to talk about IVF there, and we do in the course of that season talk a little bit about it, but we thought we'd talk more about it here. Turns out there's a lot to say. Turns out there's a lot to say. And as we get into today's topic, why don't we start with some scripture? Psalm 113 says this, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. To make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. The Bible talks all the time about barrenness and infertility, the inability to have children. It's baked into the curse that comes to women through the fall of Adam. 
pain in childbearing, sometimes death in childbearing, sometimes no childbearing at all. But God is a God who loves to have mercy on his children despite the curse of sin and death. Right, which is why the Bible is full of stories of the pain of barrenness, but also of God opening the wombs of the barren and giving them the joy of children. Uh, which has what to do with today's episode, guys? <laughs> well, if we're going to talk about IVF, we have to start with infertility, right? Right. That's and, where we're going to start. And infertility treatments and the fertility industry at large. We want to talk about all of it. Yep. So this this is going to lead us into next week's episode, which is about IVF and embryo adoption, or it's at least starting to get into that stuff in the crazy dystopian sci-fi world that we live in. Or maybe it's a sci-fi utopian world we live in. Best. Maybe. <laughs> we'll find we'll, out. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, we'll find out. <laughs> but Keep anyway, listening. There's a huge industry built around helping people have children. Ah, and the more you look into it, the more it feels like one of those movies where the clones have to flee the evil corporation that doesn't think they're humans or whatever. Guys, I mean, God wants people to have kids. He commands us to be fruitful and multiply. Ergo, big fertility is great. That's the official SOS position, right, guys? Uh, maybe not so fast there, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> We'll get to the official uh, sound of sanity take when we get to it. We're not there yet. I mean, no. We're not ready to put our foot down. No, no, <laughs> no. no, no we're not really. Feet and and <laughs> we're not tapping our tapping our hat, tipping our hat, <laughs> no, tipping our hats. no tipping it. We're not, and no sarcasm. We're either. not showing our cards, right. but right. it is possible <laughs> that there's one or two itsy bitsy teeny weeny problems with big fertility. It is possible. Be that as it may, we have to start with the fact that the fertility industry exists because of several factors, some of which are really good. Namely, the desire that people have to actually have children. It's God-given desire. He built it into people since creation. And throughout the Bible, as I'm sure most of our listeners know, God is unabashedly pro-kid. Psalm 127, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Psalm 128, Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Babies are a good thing. Having them is a good thing. It's a blessing. We're supposed to want it. Women especially are supposed to want it. Because God made them the life givers. It's tied to their identity as women. So deeply tied that First Timothy 2 says women will be safe through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Which doesn't mean that women aren't saved by the work of Jesus just like men. It just means that a large part of sanctification, of working out salvation, is worked out through childbearing. Being a mother. Just like a large part of a man working out his salvation will be through husbanding and fathering and providing. So much so that later in Timothy it says that he who does not provide for his own household is worse than an unbeliever. So, long story short, God made people to want to reproduce. He made women to want babies. He ordained it all as part of what we're supposed to do and tied it to all kinds of awesome blessings. Yay! Except there's this little thing we call sin which leads to this little thing that we call death, which stems from this little thing we call the fall of man. Well, there is that. So God's curse on Eve made childbearing hard and painful, and for some women, impossible. And that's a really sad thing. And a large part of the work of human civilization throughout history has been mitigating the effects of the fall and God's curse on us because of it. Just like we mitigate the effect of God's curse on Adam, namely that Work is difficult and painful, so we, you know, have things like gloves and backhoes and safety goggles and computers. Brillo pads! Don't forget Brillo pads! I was getting to the Brillo pads, guys. <sighs> okay. God cursed work. It's always going to be hard and painful, and in some places, fruitless or impossible. 
we accept the curse. We don't pretend like we can ever completely avoid God's discipline, but we also accept the graces he's given us to mitigate it. Similar thing for the curse on childbearing. We're not here to talk about hospital births versus home births or epidurals. No, no, no saints preservers. Let's not talk about that. But we do all mitigate the effects of the curse one way or another, even if it's just with blankets and cool tap water. So fertility treatments and the fertility industry exists to help mitigate the curse of infertility. Everything is awesome. And to make money. Everything's slightly less awesome. And also to allow women to put off childbearing as long as possible, well beyond their childbearing years, so they can pursue a career in education and all the other things that feminists tell them they should want instead of, you know, the thing they were designed to want, just babies. Very much less awesome. Yeah, part of what makes this all really complicated is that our culture actually really hates God's command to be fruitful and multiply. Our culture is all about telling women, in any way they can, movies, ads, billboard, whatever, that the blessing is a curse. Or at best, a lifestyle choice to be accepted or rejected for any reason whatsoever. There is also, even in this post-Roe versus Wade world, a giant industry that kills millions of babies every year. And a guilt-ridden populace that has to make their peace with that fact somehow. A lot of that culture of death finds its way into the fertility industry then. Because of course it does. Like, here's an idea. Let's take a bunch of people that often don't even believe in life as God defines it and have made their peace with the culture of murder and death and maybe even participated directly in that culture of murder and death by aborting their babies. And let's put these people in charge of helping desperate people create babies. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Well, it is a crazy world that we live in. To borrow a tagline from a different podcast... This is the world we made. All right. That, that, that's absolutely right. But the question is, why did we make this world again? Well, I think we already basically answered that. Made it because of infertility, desire families to have children, desire fertility doctors to help their patients. And also the desire of fertility doctors to make money. Not to put too fine a point on it. It's big business. Big business. It is a huge <laughs> business, <laughs> which is worth keeping in mind as we talk about these things. So let's jump in, though. Well, okay, before we do, we're not unaware as we talk about this stuff that it might be a really uncomfortable topic for you, the listener, personally. Yeah, okay, we know that a lot of Christians have done things like IVF and maybe haven't even thought through or begun to think through all the implications. Or maybe they have thought through it and have a bad conscience about it after the fact. Maybe you, listener, are one of those people. If so, don't worry. We, we know it's a complicated topic. We want to handle it with care. We will be considering the evils of some of these industries, but we'll talk about the good as well. Without denying what is evil, it is worth saying that God is kind. He's not unaware that we all come at this huge issue with different levels of understanding and that there's a lot to take in and that some so-called experts are more or less honest than others. Okay, so as we move forward, let's be chill, trust God, and have faith for the discussion. All right, with all of that as backdrop, let's talk about the fertility industry and the things that people do to be fertile. To start with, let's define some acronyms. Oh, boy. I-V-F and A-R-T and I-U-I's. Ben, in case our listeners don't know, what do those acronyms stand for? (laughs) Nathan, 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 don't you think our listeners are... Smart enough to know what IVF and ART and IUI stand for? Well, Ben, maybe a cat knocked the iPhone off the coffee table and it started playing the podcast, and the cat doesn't understand these terms because it's a dumb cat. Oh, all right, you got me. 
All right, fine. IVF stands for in vitro fertilization. IVF stands for in vitro fertilization. IVF stands for in vitro fertilization. What's that in vitro part mean? <laughs> well, if you don't remember your Latin, Nathan. <laughs> it's a zoom away, my friend. <laughs> it means in glass. You know, like in a glass tube as opposed to in the womb. Basically, it means putting a sperm together with an egg in a lab as opposed to the old-fashioned way where it just happened in a woman's body. Sperm and the egg still have to be taken from a man and a woman, of course, so in the embryo that you make still has to go inside a woman, although you know, people would like to change that, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. IVF also stands for InterVarsity Fellowship, although I think we call that IVCF, but InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It also stands for Integrated Vehicle Fluids. Thanks, Jake! But we're talking about in vitro fertilization today. Thanks, Jake. <laughs> you know, where you combine a sperm and egg and... Be- anyway, I- IVF is a type of ART, A-R-T, which stands for Assisted Reproductive Technology. ART, A-R-T, which stands for Assisted Reproductive Technology. ART, A-R-T, which stands for Assisted Reproductive Technology. Which doesn't mean just any technology used to assist in reproduction. If it was that broad, it would mean the aftershave I use that drives my wife crazy. <laughs> You can't say that on this podcast. I will say it, Ben. (laughs) What it it actually means is all fertility treatments in which either eggs or embryos are handled, quote unquote, outside of regular sexual intercourse. Does not include treatments where just sperm is handled outside of regular sex. Which brings us to our final term, IUI, which is intrauterine insemination. IUI, which is intrauterine insemination, which is not an art. Because it involves sperm, not eggs or embryos. Following all that, listener? It'll get easier as we go. So to recap, ART, art or assisted reproductive technology, is any fertility treatments in which either eggs or embryos are handled. The version of that you've probably heard of is IVF. But there are other non-ART fertility treatments, such as IUI, that involve handling sperm. And then there are the fertility treatments that just involve stimulating a woman's egg production without actually harvesting an egg. Okay, so big picture, there's all kinds of this stuff in our world today. It's a world where many children are conceived outside the womb. Or conceived with the aid of sperm that don't belong to the husband of the family through a sperm donor. Or implanted into a surrogate mother who brings the baby to term and then gives the baby back to his genetic parents. Or conceived with the husband's sperm and an egg from an egg donor, which are fertilized in vitro, in glass, and then implanted in the body of the wife, who is a mother in the sense that she's carrying the baby to term, but she's not the genetic mother. Uh, Some of these test tube babies, these IVF babies, are cryopreserved for months or decades at a time. So essentially... If you're following, these babies are made in a lab, and then they're frozen. Actually, lots of them are. But we'll talk about that more in a minute. Some of these little frozen embryos are adopted, and then they're implanted into the womb of an adoptive mother who isn't the genetic mother. Remember what we said about this all feeling like some sci-fi movie? This is a world where human beings can be, and they are, products of technology. It's where they're treated as property, to be created, preserved, donated, destroyed, at the will of their genetic parents. It reminds me a lot of Roman times and actually lots of ancient pagan civilizations where a father had the right to just kill his children as he pleased. Yeah, we read those ancient laws and we look down on them and then we go and do the same thing. We're going to talk about all these aspects, but 
Fellas, I think we could do worse than run through some more facts and statistics before we go any further, huh? <laughs> we could do worse. Yeah. We could also maybe do... Alrighty! Let's talk about facts and statistics <laughs> related to fertility treatments in a little segment I call Facts and Statistics Related to Fertility Treatments. Cute. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our new favorite segment, Facts and Statistics Related to Fertility Treatments. Jake, why don't you start us off? Tell us a mind-blowing fact or statistic. Well, Nathan, if you insist. Oh, I do. Let's start with general fertility stats. From 2006 to 2010, 12.1% of all women ages 15 to 44 in the U.S., which is 6.71 million women, had impaired fecundity. Wow, so... For every 100 women, about 12 of them had impaired fecundity. That's a lot of ladies, but just what is impaired fecundity? <laughs> Nathan, old chum, I'm glad you asked. The CDC defines impaired fecundity as, quote, physical difficulties getting pregnant or carrying a baby to term, unquote. So it, it doesn't mean you can't have a baby. It just means that you experience problems trying. You can be diagnosed as having impaired fecundity even if you've had a baby before. It just means you're having difficulties now. A little fewer than half of those 6.71 million women with impaired fecundity were married. And in that same span of time, 2006 to 2010, 6% or 1.53 million married women were simply infertile. Which again, you can be considered infertile even if you've had a baby before. So infertility is defined as not being able to get pregnant after a year of trying. Of course, a lot of what we're talking about with infertility is people who've never had a baby. And a lot of People like that are older married women. So back to that 2006 to 2010 time span, a lot of good data there from CDC, whatever. 27% of, here's a, here's a good word, nulliparous married women, nulliparous? Nulliparous married women ages 35 to 44 were infertile. I know what nulliparous means, but maybe some of our listeners don't, Ben. Oh man, I'm glad you're thinking of those ignorant listeners, Nathan. Uh, nulliparous means she's not previously brought a baby to live birth. She might have been pregnant, but the pregnancy was not successful. So 27% of married women ages 35 to 44 who never had a child born to them were infertile. Right. And this is another marker of where we are as a society. Women get married later, they decide they want children later, and then it's harder for them. But at least they have that doctorate in queer musicology. Hey, hey, no reason to be snarky. There are lots of good reasons why a woman might be unmarried or childless until later in life, Nathan. If you are a godly woman in this age range who got married later or who's wanted to get married and couldn't for whatever reason, this criticism isn't intended for you. No, it's not. But there are many bad reasons people don't get married and have children, which is all Nathan was pointing out. That's Feminism, right. worship of academia, cult of careerism for women, these things have consequences. And that's, of course, very true. And speaking of markers of where we are as a society, during the same time period we've been talking about, 35% of all married women ages 15 to 44 were surgically sterile. Sterile by choice. Right. In our modern society, we pick and choose when and whether we'll have children, either by opting for surgical sterility, on the one hand, not to mention abortion, or by waiting until it's harder biologically to have a baby, on the other hand. Which pushes women and couples towards extreme and expensive fertility treatments when they do want a baby. Which is one obvious way that big fertility is in cahoots with big abortion and birth control. The more people don't have children early when their bodies are designed to have children, the more they'll be desperate to have them late. 
We're in the money. Well, fellas, how about just a few more sort of general infertility stats, then we can move on to some facts about infertility treatments. Sure. Let me quote from a webpage on the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Studies. Oh, let him, Ben. Let him. Well, all right, Nathan. This once. Quote, studies suggest that after one year of having unprotected sex, 15% of couples are unable to conceive. And after two years, 10% of couples still have not had a successful pregnancy, end quote. Uh, Related to that, a Pew study found that 33%, one in three Americans, had gotten fertility treatments or knew of someone who had. And I assume those treatments run the gamut from extreme sci-fi stuff to the kind of treatment none of us would have a problem with. Your gamut assumptions are as accurate as ever, Nathan. Thank you, Jake. Yep. So here are some numbers from a 2019 article that... I think we'll come back to later. It's called The Fertility Center Regulation Crisis in the United States. So this article says there are about 480 fertility centers in the U.S. and that more than one out of 10 women use their services and that the fertility industry as a whole brought in an estimated $2.1 billion in 2018. $2.1 billion? That's like 10 gallons of gas in Biden's America. Almost enough to buy a loaf of bread. Oh, Nathan and Ben, you're such cards. <laughs> uh, anyway, bottom line, there's a lot of infertility around, and it's uh, there's a lot of money involved in addressing it, which I think we might have mentioned before. Yep. Well, this is a good segue into talking facts and stats about specific fertility treatments. Can I get some facts, Ben? I must be a form of communication from the 1980s, Nathan, because you can call me the fax machine. <laughs> Ben, my friend, it's you who is the card. <laughs> yeah, the Joker. <laughs> In any case, Nathan, <laughs> approximately 2.1% of all infants born in the United States every year are conceived using art. Assisted reproductive technology, once again. The type of fertility treatment where you handle eggs or embryos. But let's not get to egg embryo ART treatments yet. Jake, tell me a fact about a non-art fertility treatment like, oh, I don't know, artificial insemination. From 2011 to 2015, according to stats from the CDC, 1.4% of women aged 15 to 44 were artificially inseminated. And whose sperm was used? I mean, obviously the husband, right? Not some anonymous donor? We don't know. Not only do we have to settle for a statistic on artificial insemination instead of hard data. We have no hard data that I could find on, for example, the breakdown between donor sperm and uh, husband sperm. We don't we don't even know how many sperm there are in our nation's sperm banks. Yeah, one of the problems we're going to talk about later, in fact, is that the fertility industry is highly unregulated. These sperm banks aren't required to keep records, and the fertility clinics are not required to keep records on their procedures. Well, what about donor eggs? Are there records of those? Not really. Big picture, when it comes to artificial insemination and sperm donors and egg donors and IVF and all the pregnancies that come out of this sort of sci-fi dystopian world, a lot of organizations, sperm banks, fertility clinics, whatever, they're not required to keep any records. And the U.S. is particularly bad about this. Other nations like the U.K., for example, are much better. Wait, so let me repeat that for our listeners. These facilities, which are either full of donor sperm or donor eggs, or doing the work of putting that sperm inside a woman, or donated sperm, or eggs for in vitro fertilization, which are responsible for who knows how many thousands of babies each year in the U.S., these facilities are not required to keep records of any kind. That's correct. That's crazy. So let me just ask another question. 
Do we have any idea at all how many sperm donors or how many donated sperm there are in these sperm banks? Not really. Thousands of donors, guessing millions of sperm in sperm banks. Well, how many sperm banks are there in just the U.S.? Over 500. And hey, for a little insight into that world, here's a quote from a 2018 article on sperm banks from The Guardian. So, quote, California Cryobank claims it is the largest sperm bank in the world by any metric. Scott Brown, director of client experience, noted that the firm has a pool of roughly 600 donors and a track record of 75,000 live births globally since 1977. The company has locations in Palo Alto, Los Angeles, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and New York, unquote. One of the points of that article is that sperm is a big American export. Well, sure, everybody always talks about that, our big American exports, crude oil, auto parts, sperm. Yeah, let's talk about imports for a second, though. Do we have to? <laughs> America also imports other countries' sperm. Yay. Well, and here's another point about sperm. Yay. <laughs> the U.S., along with certain countries like Denmark, allows anonymous sperm donation. Men are more likely to donate sperm if it's anonymous. Are, are they paid for it then yeah according to the same article they're paid 30 to 130 dollars per sample and how much does an iui uh, intrauterine insemination cost well according to cny fertility clinics website the cost is anywhere from a few hundred to over four thousand dollars per cycle depending per cycle means per insemination Wow, so let me just reiterate again we're moving fast here we don't know how many iuis are performed each year or the number of pregnancies or live births resulting from them? Not really. And it would be nice to know how many of these IUIs use donor sperm and how many use, say, the husband's sperm. But like we already talked about, we don't know that either. So there's a lot that just isn't regulated or even tracked about this industry, huh? Yeah, and on the topic of bad information, here's a quote from a 2015 Huffington Post article that's talking about an older estimate of births from donor insemination. Quote, in 1988, the Office of Technology Assessment estimated that 30,000 children were born via donor insemination during the year 1986-87 in the U.S. More than a quarter of a century, and no further research later, 30,000 annual births is still trotted out in academia, lectures, and the media. Sometimes the number is doubled, probably to allow for the passage of time, and occasionally a range of 30,000 to 60,000 is deployed, end quote. The point of the article is that it's nonsense to keep using some number from the 80s that was just an estimate anyhow. There's a lot more of this stuff going on now than there was in the 80s. So we may be talking 60,000 babies a year through artificial insemination, or maybe more. So let me sew this on with an iron thread. Once again, the sperm industry is crazy, unregulated, and untracked. We do know that bigger picture, donor sperm would account for a lot more babies than donor eggs for two big reasons. One, egg donation has only been around since 1983, but sperm donation has been around since 1952. Two, not to put too fine a point on it, but it's much easier to donate sperm than eggs. So there's more data about donor eggs generally, but it's not comprehensive or anything. There's voluntary reporting from certain organizations, and then there's estimates. Okay, well, let's actually just move into talking about donor eggs. First, just to make sure everybody's on the same page, what do we mean by donor eggs? We mean women using somebody else's eggs in place of their own eggs in IVF. Yeah, so the website cofertility.com estimates the number of women using donor eggs each year to be close to 6,000. So there's your estimate of like how many eggs are being used each year. So are we talking about like eggs that are, for lack of a better way of talking about it, fresh or, or frozen? 
Well, actually, the website breaks down the difference between women using frozen donor eggs and women using fresh donor eggs, and it's about half and half. But we need to keep in mind, even though we're trying to give separate breakdowns for different realms of fertility treatments, these things sort of bleed into each other because donor sperm could be used for artificial insemination or they could be used for in vitro fertilization, IVF. In other words, sometimes donor sperm is put into a woman one way or another. Other times it's combined with an egg outside of a woman. For IVF, which we're going to talk a lot more about later. Right. But also, some thousands of donor eggs are frozen in egg banks to await fertilization at a later time. Not to be confused, because none of this is confusing, not to be confused with fertilized eggs that are frozen in embryo banks. Yeah. Fertilized eggs? You mean like embryos, as in little human beings made in God's image? Uh, yeah. There's multitudes of those frozen in embryo banks. Multitudes. Don't tell me. Let me guess. There are no solid records of how many thousands of embryos, thousands of little human beings, are cryopreserved, as they call it, in the U.S. You guessed correctly, Nathan. These facilities, they're not required to keep records. But estimates are that over a million of these boys and girls are frozen throughout hundreds of storage facilities in the U.S. alone. That's insane. It is insane. Let me read from something even more insane from 2013 called On Abandoned Embryos. Quote, The majority, 87%, of these frozen embryos in the United States are, at least in theory, designated, meaning that the couples who created them plan to use them for future children. About 5% are specifically designated for destruction or research, while 2% are specifically designated for donation, end quote. Yeah, and here I just want to go ahead and say that donation means adoption, embryo adoption. Embryo adoption is adoption in name. It's adoption in truth, for that matter, but it's not a legal reality in the United States. So legally, all these embryos are just simply the property of their genetic parents. So embryo adoption, when it happens, it happens under property law. Okay, you can keep going if you want to, Jake. Quote, This fits with the correct observation by the pro-abortion camp regarding adoptions in general, embryo adoption or conventional adoption, that, quote, most people would rather abort their unborn offspring than let someone else raise them. So the majority of little boys and girls frozen alive are, you know, designated for use as future children. 5% of those little boys and girls are designated for destruction or research, and 2% for adoption or donation, as they call it. And 3.5% are just abandoned. And a fraction of a percentage point of these precious babies made in God's image are thawed on purpose to die for laboratory quality control. Don't worry, Ben. It's for the sake of all the embryos. We can't keep all the other embryos alive if you don't put a canary in the mine shaft from time to time. It's the good of the one for the good of the many. Oh, I get it now. The good of the one for the good of the many. Thanks, Star Trek. These are little people made in God's image, and they're being sacrificed for laboratory quality control. Like Ben pointed out, they're property, not people. Property to be donated or destroyed or given up for research at will. This is the world we live in. It sounds like Christians should have nothing to do with any of this stuff. Well, well. To be continued next week. Oh. oh. In that case, I've got one more use for the acronym IVF. Oh. I'm very frustrated. Oh, Ben. Yeah. 